Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good morning, Maranatha. Good to see each one of you uh, this morning. Uh, Question for you, how many of you have traveled to a foreign country? Show me your hands. How many of you have traveled to a foreign country? Okay, you know, what about a foreign country where uh, English isn't the main language, uh, English isn't really even spoken? (laughs) A few of you, yeah. It's a little bit different, isn't it? It can be hard to interact or to get around with, with others when you don't speak the language, when you don't understand the culture. Uh, in 2016, Liz and I went to Ecuador for a wedding. Uh, she grew up there as a missionary kid, and uh, one of the family's um, childhood friends was getting married, and, and so we took the opportunity to go down uh, for the wedding. And back in high school, I had taken uh, two years of Spanish, uh, but when I got to Ecuador, I was lost. (laughs) High school textbook Spanish is very, very different than the Spanish that's actually spoken in real life South America. Uh, There were a couple of times on that trip when I found myself uh, thinking that I was out of place and I was lost. I don't speak the language. I don't eat the chicken foot soup. I don't quite belong here. (laughs) And I would often ask myself, how do I relate? How do I interact with people with whom I don't share much in common. And that question is what Peter really addresses as he writes here to the early church. Uh, Yet the differences that Peter and the early church faced, uh, they weren't language barriers or a divide really over ethnic food. There was a deeper divide than that. Remember last week in verse 1, Peter called them exiles. He wrote to them as exiles. And, and this title of exile has a, has a twofold meaning. First, Peter talks about those who have literally been forced from their homes and their homeland to a new land, to a new home. The, the church, the, the capital C church, meaning the, the universal body of believers, the, the holy Christian church that we talked about during the Apostles' Creed, the, the church was, was centered in Jerusalem and around the area of Galilee. Uh, but as the, the good news began to spread and grow and more people became Christian, persecution of believers began to grow as well. And there was pressure on Christians from the Jewish authorities to recant their beliefs that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, There was pressure beginning to mount from the Roman officials uh, as well, ordering the worship of Caesar. But instead of squashing out Christianity, this persecution of the early church only only emboldened them and encouraged them as they they went. And they began to to leave the areas of persecution, began leaving Jerusalem and Galilee, and they took the good news of the gospel with them wherever they went. And as the church grew and spread, as as they migrated, and so Peter calls them exiles because they had been dispersed to cities, dispersed to communities that were vastly different from the areas they were familiar with. 
And yet we realize that there's a deeper meaning as well behind this term exile. Exile from the physical homeland that these Christians were experiencing was in reality just a type, a foreshadow, if you will, of the, of the reality of the true exile that all Christians feel and understand. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. We are all just visiting. Paul said in, in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship, our, our true and lasting citizenship is in heaven. And the author of the book of Hebrews, as he talks about the faith of the saints in the Old Testament, he, he said this, they all died in faith, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, because as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. This world and all that goes with it is not our home. We are just passing through, looking forward, longing for our eternal heavenly home. And that doesn't mean, however, that we completely give up on endless life and go to a monastery or a convent and wait for our, for our death or for the Lord to return. No, far from it. We are called to be salt and light in this world and to interact with it, to make a difference, to engage. And, and so that brings up the question uh, that Christians have been wrestling with for, for 2,000 years. How do I live as an exile? How do I conduct my life and order my priorities? And Peter answers that question with, with three different commands, three different imperatives uh, in, in these seven verses that we're going to be looking at here from 1 Peter chapter 1. And those commands will serve as an outline for our text. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you haven't found that already, uh, we'll be reading verses 13 through 21 this morning together. Uh, would you stand as you are able as I read God's word? Again, 1 Peter Chapter 1, beginning with verse 13, reading in Jesus' name. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you again for the morning and for the opportunity that we have to gather together and continue on in the book of 1 Peter. And Father, we have a lot of distractions on our hearts and our minds today. Lord, we ask that you would take those away and help us to look at your word and to glean from your word. Help us to draw close to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated.
I said there were three commands, three imperatives uh, that Peter gives in these verses. And you, you probably noticed if you're trying to count, he doesn't lay them out one, two, three, first do this, then do that, then do this. But, but this whole section of Scripture, these seven verses, are really built around them. And we'll walk through them here one by one. And the first is found in verse 13. Peter tells us to hope fully. Hope fully. Listen to verse 13 again, especially the second part. He says, Set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's important to notice that this command is two words. Hope fully, not hopefully. Does that make sense? Does that make a difference? Uh, When the term hopefully one word is used. Uh, we, we use it to express wishful thinking, right? Hopefully the Vikings will be able to stop fumbling the football and can turn their season around, right? Or hopefully the weather will cooperate for a, for a great harvest this fall. When, when Peter uses the phrase hope fully, two words, he's giving a command and telling us how to do it. Hope is the verb. Hope is the command. And it tells us what to do. And then fully describes how we are to hope. Completely, totally, wholly. Hope. And when the Bible uses the term hope, it uses it to describe something that we can be sure of. Something that we can place our faith and our trust in. Something that we long for with eager expectations. And all people put their hope in something, whether it's for this life or for the next life. Some people place their hope in their career, in their vocation. Their hope is in their job and their job title and the position within a particular company. Their hope is in the quantity of deals that they close. Some people place their hope in their accomplishments the trophies that they earn, the the, the grades they achieve, the stuff that you fill your life with, the people with whom you associate. Some people place their hope in their own good deeds, trusting in their own works to provide them with joy and peace and fulfillment. But in the end, all of those things fail to satisfy. The Christian's hope, Peter says in verse 13, is to be rooted and grounded fully, completely and totally on the grace of Jesus in our lives. This grace, Peter says, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And typically when we think of revelation, we think of end times, right? The mark of the beast, the great tribulation, the millennium, that sort of thing. And the word revelation simply means uncovering or unveiling, revealing something. And yes, there is a future aspect to the grace that Paul, I'm sorry, that Peter is talking about that will be brought about when when Christ returns as conquering king. At that time, his grace will be fully known and fully understood, fully revealed, and we'll experience it fully when he when he finally and ultimately defeats sin and death and the devil and recreates heaven and earth and when we stand in his presence and when he dwells with us we will fully know fully understand that grace but yet there's also an aspect where this revealing of Jesus Christ has already taken place and continues to take place even now it is a a present reality The, the the little word at 
not in verse 13 could also be translated as in, in the revealing of Jesus Christ. How is Jesus revealed to you? How is he made known to you? How is he uncovered to you? Through his word, right? Right? Through his word, through the sacraments, God's grace is brought to you, revealed to you each time you open up God's word. There you encounter him. You encounter his grace. The Bible is called the primary means of grace. It's the primary avenue, the primary channel of God's grace to you. Grace isn't just some ethereal thing up in the heavens, but it actually comes down to you as you read his word, as you read it, as you hear it proclaimed. God's grace is distributed, given to you. God's grace is also brought to you through the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly described as the secondary means, uh, avenues, channels of God's grace because it's through those things that we receive grace as well. And so as, as Peter is talking about the grace to be revealed, I think he was kind of talking about both of, of these future grace to come and the present reality. I think he was kind of being intentionally ambiguous as he, as he wanted to refer to both of those things. And there are a few phrases in verse 13, back to our text, that, that describe how we are to hope fully on God's grace. And again, not to wade too deeply into Greek sentences and structure and function, uh, but in, in the Greek, these, these phrases are participles that help the main verb. And if you're lost, don't worry, I don't even understand what participles do in English, right? But they, they help the main verb and they describe how we are to carry those things out. And they, the first one is this. He says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your mind for action. And if you've got uh, the old King James Bible there with you or if you're familiar with that language, uh, you, you might be familiar with the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> That's literally what the Greek says. And it's a very vivid word picture. Because in Peter's day, longer flowing robes were in vogue for both gals and for guys. Uh, but when you were doing anything that involved exertion, hard work, fighting, walking, or running long distances, uh, those robes got in the way. And so you would gird them up, meaning you would take them and you would tuck them into your belt, thus turning that longer robe into a kilt which is a little bit better, I guess, right? <laughs> but the, 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 the picture that Paul or Peter paints is, I think, pretty clear. Just as they wouldn't want anything to hinder them as they worked, as they fought, as they ran, Peter doesn't want anything to hinder our minds when we are called to action. There are a lot of things that seek to distract our minds, aren't there? Hinder them almost seems as we've been taught not to think for ourselves, only to regurgitate the, the talking points of, of the cable news networks. When somebody we disagree with comes along, uh, we don't know how to logically or rationally argue with them, so we simply revert to name-calling. Our culture has also turned entertainment into the norm. If we have seven spare seconds in our day, we quickly whip out our phones and watch cat videos or some crazy TikTok challenge. We are becoming conditioned not to think. Our minds are out of practice and not ready for action. So what sort of action here would Peter have in mind for us to be ready for? 
Peter knows that the enemy of our souls is prowling around like a lion, seeking somebody he, to devour. And we must always be ready to take a stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, the devil wants to see us fall at every turn, and so he pulls out all of the stops. He tries to get us to doubt God's word. Did God really say this or that? He tries us to get us to believe his own lies. Yeah, the lies that you're all familiar with. For you're no good. You're worthless. Nobody really cares for you. Hmm. Believer, you need to arm yourself with the truth of God's word and set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. Meditate on Scripture. Memorize it. Share the gospel with others. Keep listening to good biblical preaching. Read a good theology. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ who will build you up and encourage you. Get built up in, in Sunday school, in Bible study. This is the action that Peter would have us preparing our minds for, the things that we should be girding the loins of our minds for. This hope that we have in Christ Jesus won't become our lasting reality without a disciplined mind and without disciplined thinking. There's a second phrase in verse 13 that describes how we are to hope fully on God's grace. Peter tells us to do this by being sober-minded. Being sober-minded refers to, as one commentator put it, a calm, steady state of mind which weighs and estimates things rightly and therefore enables us to make the right decision. Yes, we are called to action, but our actions are to be well thought through and we need to come to correct conclusions to act upon, right? And we need both of these things, don't we? We need action and we need thought. We've all acted without thinking. And it often ends in poor results, right? And we've probably had times, too, where we've overanalyzed the situation and overthought it and missed a great opportunity. Prepared minds need sober thinking and sober thinking needs prepared minds as we set our hope fully on God's grace. There's a, a second command, a second imperative that Peter provides as we seek to live uh, out our faith rightly. He says this, he says, be holy, be holy. Look at verses 14 through 16 again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be holy. <laughs> holy is, is one of those words that we use uh, in a church context, in a spiritual context, but, but sometimes we fail to understand what it means because we are so familiar with it, right? How many times did we sing the word holy <laughs> just a, a few minutes ago, right? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And uh, we probably didn't even think of it, uh, what it means. Holy has a, a couple of different definitions. It can mean to be sacred or to be set apart. Uh, in chapter 2 of, of 1 Peter, Peter calls Christians a holy race, a, a, chose, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, set apart for God. Holy also means to be perfect, without defect, without error, without sin. God is holy, holy, Holy is perfectly, perfectly perfect. And I think as Peter calls us here in, in these verses to be holy, 
I think he's getting at both of those definitions of the word holy. Be set apart and be perfect. And in practice, those things actually go very much hand in hand. As you are made God's child by grace through faith, one of the things that happens to you is that Christ's righteousness, his holiness was given to you and you were justified, you were declared right by God. I tell my confirmation students uh, that the word justified, to be a justified child uh, of God, uh, means that the Lord God looks at you just as if I'd never sinned, right? Justified just as if I'd never sinned. Holy, perfect. And the reality is that, yes, while you are justified, declared to be right, you still struggle with sin, right? And I know this is true because I I listened when you all publicly told the Lord (laughs) that you still struggle with sin this morning. You confessed your sin out loud to him, right? But I also know it's true just because of the common condition experienced by all of us. And so Peter has to remind us as we seek to live holy lives, he has to remind us not to be squeezed into the mold of our former sins. Don't be squeezed. Look at verse 14 again. Listen to it. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be squeezed. <laughs> the, the, the Greek word for, for conform is kind of a fun one. It's, and I'm going to try to say it right here, and I'm looking at it, and I'm not going to be able to do it. Skis. <laughs> Siskimatizo. All right, Siska, yeah, whatever. You, you heard it once, that was good enough. If you missed it, I'm sorry. <laughs> it literally means being pressed or, or squeezed into a mold or a pattern. We get our, Greek, our words scheme and, and schematic from that Greek word that I butchered. Uh, schematic, right, is a, a plan, it's a diagram, it's a pattern that helps engineers and builders in their work. And a scheme isn't just something designed to swindle folks out of money. Uh, But think of a a scheme in in terms of football. Uh, As the NFL season ramped up here, the the Viking fans, we heard a lot about our new defensive coordinator and uh, his schemes that he had. They would be different than the last defensive coordinator's schemes that that failed and let the opponents score points in bunches and bunches and bunches. Uh, Our new defensive coordinator was supposed to have these new schemes, these new patterns that would keep the, uh, the opponent's offenses in check. So far, though, those schemes, those patterns haven't worked. Schemes. Christians, you are called to be holy. You are not to be squeezed into your old patterns, into your old behaviors, into your old sins, into your old ways of doing life. The temptations are there, aren't they? The old, uh, the old again, the old behaviors, the old tempers that flare, the old websites. Yes, we, we struggle with sin, but we must fight to avoid being squeezed. In a 1965 sermon, C.S. Lewis talked about this fight against sin that is common to all believers. And he said this, he said, Failures will be forgiven. It is acquiescence that is fatal. The permitted regularized presence of an area in ourselves that we still claim for our own. We may never on this side of death drive out the invader of our territory, but we must be in the resistance, not in the Vichy government. (laughs) And this, so far as I can yet see, must be begun every day. 
history lesson for you. The Vichy government was the French puppet government that the Nazis established in Paris after they uh, conquered that city. And on paper, the Vichy government was French, run by the French, controlled by the French, everything like that. But it did nothing without the say of the Nazis, without the approval of Berlin. So it was no real government. Those who fought in the resistance sought to drive the Nazis from power. And Lewis says that with that same energy, with that same vigor that they were opposing the Nazi government, he says that we must every day seek to drive out the invader of our territory, of our souls, the enemy, the devil. We fight the good fight daily. We battle sin, not being squeezed into our old patterns. And this new pattern for holiness, this new pattern for holy living is God himself. He is unwaveringly perfect, good, right, and just. And he has called you, believer, to that same standard. Be holy as he is holy. So how do you become holy? Is is holiness a, a benchmark that you can achieve, a standard that you can uphold, a goal that you can make by just trying harder and doing weller, gooder? To be sure, we are called to be holy, but we cannot be holy in our own strength, in our own power. The ability to be holy comes from God's calling of us and choosing of us. He has called us, and his call enables us to live holy lives. Peter gives a a third command, a final imperative for for Christians as we seek to live as exiles on this earth. And I've summarized it this way, live rightly, live rightly. It's found in verses 17 through 21, and let me reread these as well. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." There's a lot packed in those verses. We'll hit some of the highlights as we go through this text. And the imperative, the command that Peter gives in those verses is conduct yourselves. Conduct yourselves. Live rightly. We are to conduct ourselves to live rightly, he says, with fear throughout the time of your exile. With fear. In Scripture, the word fear doesn't, doesn't mean often like to cower in the corner, uh, afraid of the dark or, or the boogeyman type fear. Fear, as it's used in Scripture, with, with, especially with relation to the Lord and to God, it's used in terms of, of a sense of reverence or, or holiness, uh, respect. As you come to the Lord, you, you approach him boldly because of Jesus, yes, but also with the respect that is due to him because he is holy. So we conduct our lives, we live rightly with fear, but we also, Peter says, to live rightly with the proper motivation, living rightly with a proper motivation. 
And Peter says there are two pieces to living rightly with this proper motivation. And the first piece of our motivation for right living is that God is our judge. Verse 17 tells us that he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. There will come a day when all of your actions, each of your thoughts, every one of your words and the entirety of your deeds will be called into account. Your life will be examined in detail. There will be no stone of your life unturned. Nothing will be concealed. Nothing will remain hidden. We get a a glimpse of this judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. John says, And there I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, That's the Lord God. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. On that day when you are judged by, the, by your deeds. The book of your life will be read. Uh, the documentary of your life will be streamed for all to see. And as the evidence of your life is given, you will be found guilty. Your sin will condemn you. The sentence of eternal separation from the Lord and from all that is good will be given. However, there's a second book that's open, right? The Lamb's Book of Life. And if you are a follower of Jesus, your name is written there. And if it's written there, the sentence of death is wiped away because Jesus has already paid for your sin in full with his own death. And he'll say to the Father, No, this one is mine. Yes, she is guilty, but I've already paid for her sin. My death has covered her. Amen. Praise the Lord. The reality of the impending judgment of God should be motivation for us to live rightly and to conduct ourselves with fear. And there's a second piece to our motivation for for living right, and that's found in verses 18 and 19. Uh, I know I just read them, but let me read them again because they're beautiful. Uh, we We live rightly, Peter says, because we have been ransomed by Christ. Knowing, he says, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. (laughs) Sort of ironic, isn't it? Silver and gold, two of the most precious metals throughout time. These things that have been fought over and striven for, silver and gold, are described as perishable things. We don't often think of that. We think of fruits and veggies and milk going bad. They are perishable. Uh, The clothes you bought for school, the new school year, will eventually fade and become outdated. They're perishable. Uh, The car you purchased will blow an engine. (laughs) Perishable. But silver and gold are, are perishable in the sense that they're only beneficial on this side of eternity. They don't count for heaven. The ancient pharaohs of Egypt believed that anything that they were buried with would cross over with them into the afterlife. So they were buried with silver and gold and other valuable treasures um, that would provide for them, they thought, in the afterlife. 
But obviously those things do not transfer, and that's why raiding their tombs was so fun and profitable. We have been ransomed, redeemed, purchased with the blood of Christ. His blood shed for you on the cross in your place and on your behalf. His blood given for you. His death for you in your place and on your behalf. And I love Peter's description of Jesus in these verses. There's obviously the imagery of the spotless lamb, right? That picture we're familiar with all throughout Scripture and we read a little bit this morning from Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant earlier this morning. In verse 20, Peter describes Jesus in a different way. He says, Jesus is the one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, before the cosmos was created, before the beginning began, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew and planned for your ransom. There were no surprises for him. And the Savior who existed before the foundation of the world, Peter says, was made manifest. He was made known in the last times for the sake of you. The one through whom all creation was created, entered into his creation. This is incarnational language, right? This is the language of Christmas. The second person of the Trinity taking on human flesh, living a sinless, perfect, spotless life, giving his life on the cross. All of this, Peter says, is for the sake of you. It is for your sake that Jesus Christ died. And brothers and sisters, let that truth, let that reality carry you Today and this week, it was for you that Christ came. And so when this week brings whatever this week is going to bring, the ups and downs, the highs and lows, let the truth that Jesus Christ came for you and gave his life for you as a ransom for you, let that reality carry you. Find your strength, find your peace, find your hope in him. Amen. Jesus, I do thank you for what you have done in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for giving your life in exchange for us, dying in our place and on our behalf. Father, and as we seek to live out holy, right lives in this world as we are exiles, we ask that you would give us wisdom as we, as we do that. May your word continue to be the standard uh, by which we make our decisions. Have your way in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.